Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. On the one-year anniversary of the assassination of Brazilian politician and human rights champion Marielle Franco, activists gather in front of the White House to honor her legacy. People will still talk about and remember the courage, the hope, the uniqueness, the laughter, and all the strength of Marielle Franco. In 100 years and well beyond, through all the seeds Marielle left to flourish, she will be an example to so many of us. Marielle presente, hoje e sempre. And for this month's episode of the F Word on Fascism, one Brazilian gives her take on the rise of Jair Bolsonaro and neo-fascism in her country. It's really just for Monsanto's sake or for the big ranchers and you know he doesn't care about the Amazon at all. He just wants to clear land for cattle and soy. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Young people in the Washington, D.C. area are converging on the U.S. Capitol for the second day in a row today, Friday, March 15, 2019, for the Global Youth Climate Strike, during which students from all over the country joining with students around the world are not attending classes to bring urgent attention to the climate crisis. Initiated by Swedish teen activist Greta Thunberg, the strike issued a statement saying, quote, We, the youth of America, are striking because the science says we have just a few years to transform our energy system, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, and prevent the worst effects of climate change. We are striking because our world leaders have yet to acknowledge, prioritize, or properly address our climate crisis, end quote. Some of the student demands and solutions include a Green New Deal, a halt in any and all fossil fuel infrastructure projects, preserving public lands and wildlife, and keeping our water supply clean. On Thursday, thousands of students from the D.C. area walked out of school and rallied at the White House before marching to Capitol Hill to demand Congress pass gun safety legislation. The action, organized by students in Montgomery County, Maryland, occurred on the one-year anniversary of the nationwide march on Washington organized by survivors of last year's Parkland, Florida school massacre, after which Nicholas Cruz was charged with killing 17 students and staff at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Cruz has yet to stand trial. One of the younger marchers spoke at Thursday's action. My name is Havana Chapman Edwards and I'm eight years old. also the number of kids who die from gun violence every day. Even though I am tiny, my voice is not, because I know it's not up to some of us to create change. It's going to take all of us. I am here today because everyday gun violence has hurt my family. My cousin Tony was shot and killed when he was 17 years old. Tony was in high school like most of you. He wore number 44 on his football jersey. He loved his family and made them proud. 
he was killed before he had the chance to vote people out who don't care and won't remember his name. I am here because I deserve the chance to make it to 18 and years old and vote people out too. Organizers of that march, Montgomery County Students for Change, said that they are supporting H.R. 8, a bill in the House that expands background checks for gun sales. Yesterday's march occurred less than a day before at least 49 people were shot to death and dozens more injured at a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand. In news from the Trump administration, the FAA reversed course and grounded the controversial Boeing 737-8 MAX airplane after a second crash of the plane in six months resulted in the deaths of all those aboard an Ethiopian Airlines flight on Sunday. And after former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort received a total of seven and a half years for a variety of federal crimes this week, there was speculation about whether Manafort will be pardoned by the president. In Congress, in Congress Trump's declared national emergency to build a wall on the southern border was defeated but he did win confirmation of the controversial justice arch-conservative Naomi Rao to take Brett Kavanaugh's place on the important D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Meanwhile, The Guardian reported on a Trump administration official admitting to fossil fuel executives that his boss distracts the public with issues like the border wall while he moves ahead with dangerous plans like offshore drilling for oil. For more of this week's headlines, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, the writer and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, the Justice Department waded into the waters of celebrity scandal this week with the arrests of several people connected to a pay-to-be-admitted scheme where rich parents paid uh, millions of dollars in some cases to have their students admitted into college through kind of fake athletic scholarships. What are your thoughts on it? Well, first of all, there is a submerged affirmative action issue that's been mostly neglected by the corporate media. That is to say that even some so-called liberals carp about so-called affirmative action when it relates to black and brown students, but they have nothing to say about affirmative action for the wealthy, which is basically what this scandal is all about. Recall that the father of Jared Kushner, the Trump in-law, gave Harvard $2.5 million, and then Harvard quite graciously admitted Mr. Kushner, a subpar student, to their hallowed rank. And it's also interesting to note that this is also a study of racism and inequality, because we all know that mostly black male athletes participate in so-called revenue-generating sports, speaking of football and basketball, but then what happens is that those revenue-generating sports are then used to subsidize these sports for suburbanites, speaking exactly. of water polo at University of Southern California, sailing at Stanford, etc. In other words, Georgetown's 
basketball team and University of Maryland's football team, which are heavily dependent upon recruiting black athletes who are not paid, by the way, the revenue generated is then used to subsidize these so-called white suburbanites. In other words, it's another study in inequality. Now, what's also striking is that the wealthy are using their money and bribing officials at athletic departments and presumably in admissions offices too in order to get their less than stellar children admitted into elite universities in order that the unqualified can continue to be the ruling elite of the United States of America. It's also helping to ensure that white supremacy is maintained since the students who are admitted are almost entirely Euro-American. And the question I have is, will those misguided Asian-American students who are suing Harvard and University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, among other institutions, seeking to force them to drop affirmative action for black and brown students, will they now reconsider their ill-advised lawsuit? And the next question I have is that this corruption in maintaining a generally white, really white student body, it seems to me that it bleeds over into the faculty too. I don't think you can begin to understand the fact that these institutions in the Washington, D.C. area, including George Washington, Georgetown, American University, Catholic University, University of Maryland, and College Park have disproportionately literally white faculties. It seems to me that's part of the corruption, and I would hope that some investigative journalists would look into that. Well, I, I had some other questions about that. Um, you know, I don't want to take up too much time, but it occurred to me that many of these so-called low-profile sports are only available at private schools. And I have not read the entire complaint, but it seems like it was easier to get rich white girls into these obscure obscure sports also because nobody's watching them and uh you know as the you know i know as the father of a college student i mean what was your reaction to this particular aspect of the case well obviously it puts black children generally at a disadvantage since black children generally are not participating in sailing or water polo or some other elite sports and once again, I think that the headline is not only corruption, but the headline from the scandal is how does one perpetuate white supremacy and rule by the 1% in a country as diverse as the United States of America? Right. And I guess, you know, obviously money has a lot to do with that. <laughs> Okay, so I guess going international, uh, the Senate voted on Wednesday to approve a war powers resolution to cut off American military support for the Saudi-led coalition's assault on Yemen that we've been discussing for, I don't know, more than a year now. And, and also there's other news in terms of what the U.S. is doing in that area of the world. Well, the vote in the Senate was obviously a setback for the Trump team, particularly National Security <clears throat> Advisor John Bolton. It's a setback for the Saudis as well, whose ill-advised intervention in Yemen has led to famine and mass bloodshed. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's also to the anti-Iran cabal at the State Department, 
which has conceived the support of the Saudi intervention in Yemen as a way mind to bleed Iran since from their point of view the side that the Saudis are fighting are the Houthis who they see as close to Iran. Uh, this is a setback for all of those schemes and I should also say that another setback for those schemes is the rather enthusiastic welcome that Iranian President Rouhani received in Baghdad, Iraq just this past week which was also a step back to the attempt to destabilize the Iranian regime because, as we well know, the Baghdad regime in Iraq has been pumped up, if you like, by the U.S. military intervention that stretches back to 2003. You know, it occurred to me when all the controversy was happening around Representative Ilhan Omar with her courageous speaking out against U.S., uh, our complicity in terms of Yemen, Palestine, and also Venezuela, that her own home country was being bombed. So is that still going on? What can you tell us about that? Well, both The Nation, the Weekly of New York City, and The New York Times have run major articles in recent days on the massive and incessant bombing of Somalia that's been taking place for a number of months without that much coverage until recently. Uh, this is taking place despite the fact that we have been told that the so-called Africa Command of the Pentagon is being reduced because the Pentagon supposedly wants to turn its attention more frontally and forcefully to Russia and China but despite what we were told, this bombing campaign is increasing, it's intensifying, and I must say that one has to connect it to what's going on across the Red Sea in Yemen, the, the Saudi bombing campaign taking place in that Arab country. Yeah, okay. And once again staying in Africa, uh, I'm sure you notice the massive protests that have been taking place in recent weeks seeking to force out the President Bouteflika, uh, who is 82 years old, is in bad health, and in fact, supposedly has not spoken in public for a number of years. Uh, you might have seen the movie Weekend at Bernie's, where the lead character is actually dead, but is being propped up for certain reasons. Well, the Bouteflika regime in Algiers is sort of an analogy to that. But these mass protests are very serious, and it led President Bouteflika to suspend elections. But he's maneuvering because he wants to preserve his decades-long rule. But listeners should be reminded that President Bouteflika, for a number of years now, has faced a so-called Islamicist insurgency that's waxed and waned over the years, and what needs to be considered is whether that insurgency will be wrapped up in light of the fact that there are thousands, tens of thousands protesting against this rule. Hmm. I should also say that Algeria, to step back for a moment, fits into a larger pattern of U.S. foreign policy. Is what I mean is that if you look at the countries that... Washington is focusing on, Venezuela with oil, Iran with oil, Russia with oil and natural gas, and Algeria with oil and natural gas, I think you'll detect the pattern. 
whereas the United States is seeking to get a stranglehold over the energy market, which, among other things, will allow it to have more leverage with what it sees now as a main competitor, speaking of Germany and the European Union, not to mention Japan and China. So, uh, speaking of oil-producing countries, the country with the most oil reserves in the world, which the U.S. is targeting, Venezuela is still struggling to come out of this very suspicious blackout that it's it's suffered. And, of course, you know, President Maduro has blamed the U.S. Uh, with sabotage, and, and they are apparently investigating whether their interim president uh, the U.S.'s interim president there, Juan Guaido, has anything to do with this apparent cyber sabotage, which has um, not only plunged the country into darkness, but also uh, interfered with uh, water uh, supplies. Well, if there is a silver lining in this cloud of bad news, it's the fact that China has offered to send a team of specialists to Caracas to fix this problem with the electrical supply. And this, of course, was not greeted warmly in Washington, but it does prove that the Maduro regime continues to have friends. Yeah, and, and it was actually pretty shocking this week that uh, Juan Guaido made a statement that he, he actually has the authority to invite military intervention into the country. Pretty shocking stuff. I mean, I, I know that he is under investigation, and um, and rightly so. His, his government is investigating whether he's had anything to do with not only these cyber attacks, apparent cyber attacks, but also in, um, looking at how he has violated the country's constitution um, in terms of even declaring himself to be interim president at the call of a foreign power, a foreign enemy, actually, of Venezuelans. So we'll definitely keep watch on these many stories. I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you.
thank you so much for being here. We're here to honor the memory of Marielle Franco, who was brutally assassinated last year. It's been a year now, and many of us are holding street signs. These are the exact same street signs that we have in Rio, and they made this one to honor Marielle's memory. And th th I I'm hoping the original one from the demonstration in Rio, where uh, 10,000 of these had been given out to people, and it became an even more important way of supporting the memory of Marielle. After, during the elections, some politicians who were running for different positions in Rio, they held rallies where they broke the signs and said that they would do the exact same with everybody who was supportive of uh, the Socialist Party to which Marielle belonged. Ever since, these street signs have become the best way for us to spread the word about Marielle. And if you read the sign, it says that she was a defender of human rights and minorities and she was cowardly assassinated 14th of March, 2018. And the, the numbers on the bottom represent the address where she was murdered. So this is very important to honor her memory and so we never forget. The current governor of the state of Rio de Janeiro has a picture holding up the pieces of this sign that we're holding now and saying that this would be the fate of everyone who stood up for minorities, for socialist ideals and all of their political opponents. So this is what the people who are against Marielle, who killed her, want to do with us. So it's very important that we have these signs so we can make her memory whole. And everybody here, thank you so much for coming and showing your respect and your love for Marielle Franco and for her memory. I didn't know Marielle, but I have since learned uh, about her. And of course, it's precisely because of her commitment that she was targeted. And one of the things that she really worked on was the issue of corruption and corruption among the police. And I read a statistic today. Who's from Rio? Yes. Here. Yes. All right, tell me if this could possibly be true, because I kept reading it over and over yes. thinking, this can't be true that the police have murdered over 1,500 people last year in Rio. Could that possibly be true? Yes. Over four a day. Police murders over four a day in one city. In one city. It's amazing. How many? How many? I can't, I mean, I can't even imagine that. But just to think of how horrendous it is the impunity that the police have and then the impunity that people who are working with the police have and that's why it's so important to say it's not enough to know who pulled the trigger what we have to know is who ordered the murder and so for all of you here from who are Brazilian or Brazilian Americans I just want to say how sad I am that we have the guy we have in the White House and how sad I am that you have the person that you have in the presidency in Brazil. The only thing I want to end with saying is that I know that you have Bolsonaro coming to Washington, D.C.
tonight to commemorate the one year since the death of Marielle Franco. We also need to have a big crowd out here when Bolsonaro comes. And it's bad enough that each of them, Trump and Bolsonaro, have been doing the devastating work that they've been doing. But imagine what they're going to be cooking up when they're together in the White House. Oh boy. I don't want to think about that. So thank you for, for allowing me to speak and to say personally how much I admire Marielle and everything she stood for and how important it is. And I know that there are many, many Marielles who have come up forward to take her place. So thank you, Marielle Presenti. Marielle, Presenti. Marielle, Presenti. Marielle, Presenti. Oggi, sempre. Marielle, Presenti. Marielle, Presenti. Oggi, sempre. Marielle, Presenti. Oggi, sempre. Marielle, Presenti. How y'all doing this evening? My name is Sean Blackman. I'm an organizer with Stop Police Terror Project DC. We're an organization who work to oppose racist police terror and other forms of state-sanctioned violence here in the city of Washington. And I want to thank Brazilians for Democracy and Social Justice. And I want to thank all of you for being here today because I think it's important to understand that what happened to Mary Ellie Franco was an assassination, a political assassination. It was an extrajudicial killing carried out by the police. But beyond all of that, I think we have to also see what happened to Mary Ellie Franco as an act of state terror. Now, why do I say that? Because Mary Ellie Franco was a black woman from the favela, which is the hood, for those who don't know. She was a part of the LGBTQ community and she was the member of a socialist political party. She had an anti-capitalist ideology. So when you take all that into account with the fact that Brazil is under leadership of a Jair Bolsonaro who is deeply racist, deeply sexist and misogynistic, deeply bigoted against the LGBTQ community, and who has pledged to wage an all-out war against all progressive and left elements in the country of Brazil, there's no other word to use for that other than fascism. And I don't know if you all saw this, but there's some serious questions now that we've identified the shooters of Marielle Franco, there's some serious questions about the connection between those officers and Jair Bolsonaro. They're connected to his family. He has a picture with one of them. And I think we should also remember Gene Willis. Excuse me if I'm mispronouncing his name. But he was a black, openly gay Brazilian congressman in the same party as Marielle Franco, who had to quit because of death threats that were coming to him that came as a result of this far-right government. And as if 
all of that wasn't bad enough about the Bolsonaro government, I think it's also worth pointing out that Bolsonaro is also supporting the attempted U.S. back coup in Venezuela. And so Bolsonaro is absolutely tied up and in league with U.S. imperialism. So it is important. Marielle Franco represented so many things, so many marginalized communities all at once. And she obviously had a clear understanding of how these interconnected systems of capitalism and white supremacy and homophobia and transphobia, how that connects to create a reality of outright terror, like I said, for the most marginalized members of the country and of society. That is what she was fighting for. That is why she was fighting against police brutality. That is why she was fighting against police corruption. Because she understood how deep the exploitation was for folks like her and from the community. She was very much in the tradition of other radical black women like Asada Shakur, Queen Mothermore, Claudia Jones, so many more we could name. And so you and I must be clear on this. And so I think if we're going to honor Mary Ellie Franco, and I think if we're going to take an example from our friends in Brazil who have came out in mass calling for justice for Mary Ellie, I think that it is important for us to pick up the fight against exploitation, against discrimination, and against fascism wherever it is on planet Earth we find ourselves. And I believe that that is our task. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Sean Blackman from Stop Police Terror Project DC. Peace if you're willing to fight for it and let your motto be resistance. Thank you. I kind of spoke really quick already and I actually had written something down because speaking about Marielle is very challenging. It's very, it's tough because she was like no other. So, and I speak from a place that may not represent the struggles Marielle fought for. Marielle broke many glass ceilings. She bothered the system in a country where 54% of the population is black and a black person is killed every 23 minutes. In a country with the fifth highest rank of femicides. A country with the highest number of violent cases and assassinations against LGBT people. A country with the highest number of homicides against human rights defenders. Marielle not only was a black woman, a queer, a mother, a favelada, Marielle was also in a position of power where she stood up for the most oppressed in Brazil. She bothered those who have been in power since ever. When the favelas of Rio de Janeiro finally had someone to truly represent their struggles, a woman from the favela who had the boldness to occupy a place that had not been reserved for her or for anyone like her ever before. Ideas, ideas are bulletproof. They killed Marielle, but Marielle have flourished in everything and everyone she represented and beyond. Those who pulled the trigger, as Sean was saying, may have been found, 
But we are today here to demand that those who ordered Marielle and her driver Anderson to be killed must also be found. We demand justice for all Marielle represented so that they have the freedom and strength to keep on shining her endless light. We demand justice to hate crimes enacted by government, which is driven by hate. One thing is certain. And we all really need to remember this. In a hundred years, no one will be talking about those who are in power in Brazil right now. No one will be remembering them or the militia for a reason. But people will still talk about and remember the courage, the hope, the uniqueness, the laughter, and all the strength of Marielle Franco. In 100 years and well beyond, through all the seeds Marielle left to flourish, she will be an example to so many of us. Marielle presente, hoje sempre. Marielle. 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 Hoje. Marielle. Marielle. Hoje. Hoje. Marielle. Marielle. Hoje. Hello, my name is Zahari Richter. I am representing the DC and industrial workers of the world. It's a 100-year-old American trade union, which is uh, anti-capitalist. Mabarielli was a person who operated in the tradition of liberationist anarchist feminism, and she was a person that acted within the tradition of, of queer feminism as well. And the IWW, as an organization, stands against uh, capitalism and patriarchy in its call for general strikes, that which will paralyze the capitalist economy. And my name is Zahari, my, my pronouns are she, her. I am a queer person, I am a queer feminine person. And Marielle, I see her as a kind of queer Rosa Luxemburg figure who stood at the gates of socialism and democracy and was killed because she was standing in such a vulnerable place. And her killing is a signal of the rise of the, of the crisis of capitalism and the, the rise of thuggery in the world, which is brought upon in part by Western colonialism. So uh, I, don't, I don't have, unfortunately, a, a lot of knowledge specifically about the Brazilian context, but the, the DCIWW and the, and the National Industrial Workers of the World um, are in solidarity with, with Marielle. Uh, we are in solidarity with, with Marielle because she died fighting the police, which come into play to, to defend the exploitative capitalists and the exploitative cisgender patriarchs. And I am here to, to say rest in peace, Marielle, justice for Marielle, and solidarity forever. Thank you so much. This is a song which uh, Geraldo Vandré sang in the late 60s. The chorus is Ven vamos embora que espera no es saber Quien sabe faz ahora no espera acontecer Ven vamos embora que espera no es saber Quien sabe faz ahora no espera acontecer Caminando y cantando y seguindo a canción Somos todos iguales Braços dados ou não, nas escolas, nas ruas, campos, construções, caminhando e cantando e seguindo a canção. Todos, vem, vamos embora, que esperar não é saber. 
Quem sabe faz a hora, não espera acontecer Vem, vamos embora, que esperar não é saber Quem sabe faz a hora, não espera acontecer pelos campos a fome em grandes plantações, pelas ruas marchando em decisos cordões, ainda fazem da flor meu tá mais forte refrão e acreditam nas flores vencendo canhão nas escolas. A soldados armados, amados ou não, quase todos perdidos de armas na mão, nos quartéis lhes ensinam uma antiga lição de morrer pela pátria e viver sem razão. Vem, vamos embora, que esperar não é saber, quem sabe faz a hora, não espera acontecer. I hope that you all will join me on Saturday. We will be saying no to war, hands off Venezuela. That's why I'm wearing, I'm wearing this, wearing this cap to remind people. Uh, all the lies, the, the media war that has been conducted against Venezuela and the financial war that's been conducted against Venezuela for the last too many years. I will pass this on to uh, oh, my sister in the struggle. Hello, everybody. It's really great to be here. You, when I come to Washington, I need to be in a protest, especially with something so critical to our... Brazilian sisters and brothers, the pain, and for all of us, what we're feeling about Mariela Franco, it, it really makes me think about another woman who was murdered in the turn back of the progressive governments, the leftward turn in Latin America, and that's Berta Cáceres, who was murdered several years ago for being an environmentalist, indigenous leader, who was threatened and who continually said, I'm not going to stop. I knew her in Honduras and in the United States. In fact, she won the Goldman Prize in San Francisco for so well known, she was still murdered. And again, like what happened with Mariela, the killers were found, but the leader is at the top. The coup government that the U.S. backed under Obama. So we, we have to remember that, you know, women are the target in these countries, LGBTQ, people of color, but women are reviled by these right-wing leaders. They hate women. They want to drive them back, just like Mike Pence, just like Donald Trump, just like this cobble of fascists in the White House who are declaring openly, yes, we're going to overthrow Venezuela, we're and then we're going to go after Nicaragua, and then Cuba. Well, we have an answer for them. I think the most important thing is to be at the White House on Saturday. We're far away, you know, like, they really are, like, going to draw this big boundary around it. But we will be there at 12 noon Saturday with a teaching forum. I just got back two days ago from Venezuela. I was there a month. I didn't expect to be. But it was a great experience. I was there for four days of blackout. Do not believe what the media says. You know, even for us here in the U.S., you go like, well, what's really going on? 
because the news of CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, and all the newspapers and TV that reprint from that press are expressing the most outrageous lies. No, the economy is not collapsing. The country is not in chaos. It's remarkably calm for having been subjected to this sabotage blackout. After 22 hours from Thursday night to Friday, the workers, the technicians, all the people who heroically fought to bring it back on, we were we were one hour with power before it went back down for another 30 hours. And then a few hours of light and then back. And by the third night, you could see the right wing starting to use it as an excuse to, to fight in the street. And everybody else had to be very cautious because any confrontation the U.S. can use as an excuse. The U.S. is arming paramilitaries in the country. The U.S. is buying weapons, according to Russian intelligence, buying weapons in Eastern Europe and shipping it to the borders. I was in Tachira when the U.S. was trying to bring that uh, ramming rod called so-called humanitarian aid. It's not aid and it's not humanitarian. But it was intended, that action was intended to test the strength of the military. And they failed. Because the military is united. And the people are united. Notwithstanding that there is a class struggle going on there. You have been listening to voices from a tribute to the slain Brazilian politician and human rights activist Marielle Franco. Held Thursday. March 14, 2019, in front of the White House, hosted by Brazilians for Democracy and Social Justice, the U.S. Network for Democracy in Brazil, and D.C. United Against Hate. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Iverum. After this brief break, this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, we speak to one Brazilian activist who prefers not to be named but she speaks in her own words about what's happening in her country. Stay with us. Vamos juntas. Tem um ditado, principalmente para as mulheres negras, que fala uma sobe e puxa outra. I'm here at the rally to honor Marielle Franco mm -hmm. in front of the White House and I'm talking to one of the organizers and one of the activists here to talk about what's really happening in Brazil and why we want to care about this in terms of fascism there and globally. So tell me what, what is happening in Brazil in terms of what we consider here to be the rise of fascism? So the killing of Marielle is just another step in the rise of fascism in the state of Rio, in the city of Rio, and on overall Brazil. 
and I believe that she was skilled to send a message and and the message was supposed to shut everybody up and to say we're in power and you don't mess with us but it really backfired so badly because the day after she was killed literally hundreds of thousands of people marched the streets of all over Brazil to demand justice it's such a shock for Brazil to have political assassination in the 21st century we felt like we were sliding back to the 80s and places like Colombia where people were assassinated for speaking out and we were really not expecting this to happen it's obviously there's a lot of brutal murders but the political attribute of her assassination was so strong she really was skilled because of what she stood for she stood for lgbtq rights she stood for minorities she was a single mother coming from a poor community she was rightfully elected and the message was we can shut you up but they didn't know there's a mexican saying well you tried to bury us but didn't you realize that we were seeds and we would flourish and that's exactly what happened to her wow so you talked about how shocking it is so why do you think that these people felt were so brazen why they felt like they could basically get away with it i guess that is an excellent question so Marielle's political mentor is a white middle class male who's a very prominent politician in the state of Rio and he has been threatened he has, has received death threats for over a decade and he was never really killed whereas Marielle when she came out so her political trajectory was connected to him he uh, introduced Marielle to the party and she rose on the ranks of the party and was finally elected as his mentee and then the fact that she was a poor black woman and that she got to see the end of this and that she actually got killed whereas he was never killed tells us all of the levels of as you said how can they be so brazen they wouldn't have been with the white middle class man but they felt so empowered to kill her because of who she was and what she represented because they thought that people would not fight and they thought they would just be sending a message it's just like it's a lot of thuggery happening in Brazil right now and i feel like if we look at these nuances that she was just randomly killed on the street while she was coming back from a, a meeting of black feminists and all of what she stood for they wanted to shut her up in ways that they would not have been brave enough to do with their own kind so to speak okay. yeah so when we've done these segments on fashions and we've talked about the close alignment between the state and corporations mm -hmm. and so we've been hearing reports about how Bolsonaro wants to basically privatize the Amazon he wants to basically turn over so many of the natural resources that belong to the indigenous people take away the destroy the 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 worker the land mm -hmm. the landless movement yeah so so tell us about that um, as, as much as you can in terms of 
what it means economically in Brazil. So I believe that uh, right now the main threat uh, of Bolsonaro government is definitely the revoking of the indigenous land demarcations. So it was one of his campaign promises that there would be no indigenous land under his rule. And he's actually has already started revoking some of the most recent land demarcations. And what he wants is obviously the Midwest of Brazil is already covered in soy and corn and cattle. And the agricultural frontier has to move north towards the Amazon and that's what they want. They want to clear land for soy, cattle and corn and so they are arming um, uh, farmers and so I think the people who are at the who are the weakest link right now are indigenous people who are whose struggles are being completely overtaken by the fact that they're suddenly they had they're landless and they are being killed so it is not something that used to be in the forefront of brazilian activism or brazilian or at least brazilian news but now you know we we are now seeing a rise of political indigenous leaders who are now ready to fight this because it's it's really just for Monsanto's sake or for the big ranchers and you know he doesn't care about the Amazon at all he just wants to clear land for cattle and soy how about his attacks on political opponents basically the left how is this basically being allowed in a so-called democracy I mean how can a political party be outlawed if people have a democracy and they're mm -hmm. able to vote for you yeah I don't think he would go as far so far as to outlaw the political party, the political opponents, but PT, which is the workers' party in Brazil, which was in power for the last 16 years, the opposition had so much, uh, they, they built up this anti-PT feeling, so anti-workers and anti, uh, you know, uh, Labour Party movement and it's just like this is through main media and so that's why our former president Lula was arrested it, he's still in jail now and so I don't think it's about outlawing or banning it's just about uh, well you know I can say whatever I want because it's democracy okay so that's yeah. that's the stand he's taking yeah yeah so what do you think is the, the struggle right now in Brazil? What is the main thrust that the socialists and the left mm -hmm. are working on to basically beat back what people are calling a neo-fascist state? Right. So sadly, as we saw in the elections, the left was very fragmented. We had way too many candidates and, and they didn't exactly support each other in the race because they represent so many different segments of the left and the left is always so much more organized in terms of their demands and in terms of their uh, causes but the, the, the diffuse message of the right wing they said oh we're defending family values it attracts so many people who are apolitical and sort of it, it just it speaks to them because they're talking about tradition and values and it's very much the same of what happened here when we had uh, two candidates that could have been, uh, uh, you know, could have faced Trump and then 
but the fragmentation actually worked against us. So I believe that uniting the left is crucial, and uh, especially through the rise of uh, uh, smaller socialist parties that are, not, are now gaining force because it's uh, it's really a feud and dispute. Uh, and uh, but I honestly would hope that uh, socialist movements and socialist parties in Brazil would unite against uh, oh well behind one leadership that would be strong enough to fight Bolsonaro because fragmented we lost we lost the elections we had three great leftist candidates and maybe if we had just one I don't know it's just a, such a touchy topic for uh, leftists in Brazil and leftists everywhere that you say do we have to unite but this is my cause and my cause is different than yours. but in the end we as we saw in the elections here 2016 as we saw the elections 2018 in Brazil if we're fragmented we lose and it's very sad mm -hmm. a lot of Americans don't really understand how you could go from uh, Lula being the overall favorite definitely going to win the election to Bolsonaro winning you know like why couldn't people get behind his successor the person he picked to be to come after him is that because of the same fraction that you were talking about I hope I don't sound like a conspiracy theorist but I believe there's a lot of international involvement in the result of the election. I think since Brexit, we're looking at these elections which are shady and uh, results that nobody expected. And I think there's a lot of a lot to do with algorithms, social media, fake news, or whatever kind of news that people are receiving. Right. And then in Brazil, one of our biggest social medias is WhatsApp. Right. And so his campaign was all through WhatsApp and he had this outrageous completely fake news that people would believe and just uh, yeah, I heard about that kind yeah. of like Cambridge Analytica exactly, sort of thing yeah. exactly so I don't think people are completely naive or unaware but I think they have been bombarded with the kind of information that is very hard to fight mm -hmm. because it's in your phone every day, 24 hours a day. Mm. Uh, it's on Facebook. It's on WhatsApp, and you and because of the because of the sophistication of all these algorithms, that's all you get. And then you get this distorted reality where everybody's saying the same things, and it's easy for you to believe. On top of that, there are uh, the, the, the 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 visit of Bolsonaro's son to DC during his campaign to meet with Steve Bannon is well documented. And I think that gives you like a clue of, you know, right. what kind of people, what kind of group is behind all this. All right. So last question. Okay. And you brought up <laughs> Steve Bannon. So that's a good segue. There seems to be a uniting of these right wing governments or movements or figures like Steve Bannon globally. Mm -hmm. And so right now, Venezuela is in the crosshairs. Do you get a sense that people in Brazil will back Bolsonaro's efforts to be involved to in the overthrow or attempt? the coup in Venezuela? I don't think the Brazilian population in general is as war-friendly and war-inclined as our U.S. counterparts. I don't think people are ready for war. I don't think our military is ready for an invasion. But as you know, Bolsonaro is coming to D.C. in a couple of days, and I'm sure that Venezuela is going to be in their agenda. 
I honestly don't feel that there would be like widespread popular support to a Brazilian invasion, but I think there are other ways that this could be done, such as Brazil accepting U.S. military for troops on the ground and the building of military facilities in Brazil. So Brazilians are really not very more inclined. It's actually one of the one of the things that most Brazilians are proud of is that we've never really been in a war. We never really had a war with any of our neighbors except like a, a war with Paraguay in the 1800s. We joined World War II briefly out of uh, US pressure. So we're really not a war inclined nation. So I don't think people would back that. But as I said, there are other ways to have military action on the border of Venezuela and Brazil that Sadly, uh, we have to watch really closely because I believe this is what will be discussed here by uh, these two. But there's a lot of internal violence against the black people in Brazil, though. Yeah, it's very different from uh, war culture, but we do have a violent culture, especially urban, black, poor people, and uh, very sadly leading all the ranks in a uh, number of people killed, especially, you know, male, black, under 25 years of age. So this is very, this is police brutality. It's different from uh, military action, right? Right. So we do have, however, uh, urban policing is done by uh, what we call the military police, and that's an institution created in the 1960s in the military dictatorship. So they act like the military, but they're supposed to be policing, and then that never works. They go up in the favelas and just kill people. You have been listening to voices of activists participating in the Tribute to Marielle Franco, the slain politician and human rights champion from Brazil. And that was held on Thursday, March 14, 2019, in front of the White House, hosted by Brazilians for Democracy and Social Justice, the U.S. Network for Democracy in Brazil, and D.C. United Against Hate. The voice you just heard was that of an activist from Brazil who preferred to remain anonymous. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, partner with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook, Twitter, under On the Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. And you can support On the Ground on Patreon. The music we play this hour included Morning in Rio by Sergio Mendez, Lucy Murphy singing at the Mariel Franco tribute on March 14, 2019 in front of the White House, and Mariele Presente by Caterina Dominici. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.